Let me tell you a story. There once uh, was a great and generous king who loved his people with a sacrificial love. But his people were an ungrateful, evil bunch. They were against the king and they wouldn't allow him to make peace with them. They snubbed their noses at the king no matter what he did. And although they never really succeeded, they stormed the castle over and over and over trying to overthrow this great and generous king. They rioted. They rebelled. They destroyed the gifts the king so generously bestowed upon them. They burned crops. They killed the king's representatives who carried his banner of peace. They cursed the king when he was forced to punish the worst of them for their crimes, for justice's sake, but also to keep everyone else safe. And yet the king only ever wanted peace. Despite the fact that the people continued to wrong him, continued to answer his love with hate, his light with darkness, the king only ever wanted to make peace between he and his people. Over years and years of the king sending his representatives with his banner of peace to his people, there were stories of peace. Stories of individuals laying down their weapons of rebellion and taking up the banner of peace themselves. Stories here and there, pockets of peace, really. But it was rare. It was, it was rare. More often than not, the people didn't accept the king's peace. Because inevitably, those pockets of peace would be overcome one after the other by war and rebellion, like candles being snuffed out one by one in a sea of darkness. Another riot, another rebellion, another storming of the castle. More often than not, the king would watch from his castle heartbroken as the people he so loved would reach out to people around them would reach out to the stuff that he had given them, would reach even within themselves to find peace, only to find more angst, more heartache, more disappointment. It led some of the people to begin thinking that peace was impossible, no matter what the king and his representatives would say. Not one person ever made an attempt to make peace with the king of their own accord. Never. Not one person ever initiated peace with the king. And yet, he loved and he loved generously. He gave and he gave generously, to the point that the king decided to go to the people carrying his own banner of peace himself. If the people wouldn't accept his representatives, maybe they would accept him. 
The king's counselors were against it. They said, don't do this thing. Surely the king would be hurt and maybe even killed by these evil people. He shouldn't do it, the counselors said. They told him to forget peace. They told him that kings didn't offer themselves over to their enemies. They told him it was against every protocol. The king was righteous. He was the embodiment of good. He shouldn't allow the people as they were in his presence, much less directly and actively into their presence. He shouldn't allow them to come to him, much less he go to them. But the king, he didn't see his people as his enemies. He saw them more as wayward sons and daughters. And he wasn't even sad to go to them himself. He He wasn't even hesitant. He was resolute. He was excited. He told the counselors and the advisors that it was his pleasure to offer peace to his people. He, he wanted to go. It was, it was his pleasure. And so against all counsel, that's exactly what he did. He went himself to his people carrying his own banner of peace. And he lived his generosity and his peace among the people. He demonstrated it to them. I mean, he was kind. He was generous. He was gracious. He was just. Surely the people would believe that the king only wanted their good, that he only wanted peace with them. Now that he was there in front of them face to face, surely they would accept his offer of peace. Some did respond in that way. Some did accept his offer of peace. Some did lay down their weapons of rebellion and pick up that banner of peace. Stop rebelling. Some did. But most, most didn't. In fact, the story goes that The rebellion exploded to a level not yet seen before, and the king, this great and generous king, was kidnapped, stripped, beaten, tortured, and eventually murdered. The people killed their great and generous king. The counselors were right. The advisors were right. These people were evil. They were enemies of peace in every way possible. The great and generous king was dead. Look at Colossians 1, verse 19. It says, For in him, Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Look at verse 21. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil things, alienated and hostile in mind, evil, hostile, evil, horrible, that's that's you and me. It might be kind of hard to accept, but this is, 
This is talking about you and me. This is our default position. Let me read to you uh, a, a paraphrase of Romans 1 out of the message. The message is not like other translations of the Bible in that they try to be literal, but it is actually a paraphrase. It helps sometimes uh, to look at paraphrases like this. A guy named Eugene Peterson wrote this. Um, it's a paraphrase of Romans 1 starting in verse 18, and it kind of sets the stage for us to understand where we are, our default position towards God. It'll be on the screen, and you can look it up in your Bible app a little later. But it says, God, but God's angry displeasure erupts as acts of human mistrust and wrongdoing and lying accumulate. As people try to put a shroud over truth. But the basic reality of God is plain enough. Open your eyes, and there it is. By taking a long and thoughtful look at what God has created, people have always been able to see what their eyes as such can't see. Eternal power, for instance, and the mystery of, the, of his divine being. So nobody has a good excuse. What happened was this. People knew God perfectly well, but when they didn't treat him like God, refusing to worship him, they trivialized themselves into silliness and confusion so that there was neither sense nor direction left in their lives. They pretended to know it all, but were illiterate regarding life. They traded the glory of God who holds the whole world in his hands for cheap figurines you can buy at any roadside stand. So God said, in effect, if that's what you want, that's what you get. It wasn't long before they were living in a pig pen, smeared with filth, filthy inside and out, and all this because they traded the true God for a fake God and worshiped the God they made instead. They made instead of the God who made them, the God we bless, the God who blesses us. Oh, yes. Worse followed, refusing to know God. They soon didn't know how to be human either. Women didn't know how to be women. Men didn't know how to be men. Sexually confused, they abused and defiled one another. Women with women, men with men. All lust, no love. And then they paid for it. Oh, how they paid for it. Emptied of God and love. Godless and loveless wretches. Since they didn't bother to acknowledge God, God quit bothering them and let them run loose. And then all hell broke loose. Rampant evil, grabbing and grasping, vicious backstabbing. They made life hell on earth with their envy, wanton killing, bickering, and cheating. Look at them. Mean-spirited, venomous, fork-tongued godbashers, bullies, swaggerers, insufferable windbags. They keep inventing new ways of wrecking lives. They ditch their parents when they get in the way. Stupid, slimy, cruel, cold-blooded. And it's not as if they don't know better. They know perfectly well they're spitting in God's face. And they don't care. Worse, they hand out prizes to those who do the worst things best. This is you and me, evil, hostile, God-bashers, inventors of evil, the scriptures say, cursing God to worship anything else, choosing creation over the creator over and over and over. And because of this, you and I and every human being that has ever been born 
is alienated from God, separated by hate and darkness. Later in Romans chapter 8, we find that it's not just people, but creation itself is waiting patiently, groaning for Christ's return. It's also separated and alienated from its creator. Despite the love of God, the grace of our king, shalom, peace, has been shattered. Darkness reigns. And listen, we don't care. We don't care. We, you and me, we're lovers of darkness. Romans 1 was talking about us. And yet our great God and King still desires to make peace with us. That's what it means to reconcile, to make peace. Because back to Colossians 1.21. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his Death. Listen, beloved, at our core, we despise the idea of making peace with God our Father. It's hard to accept, but it's true. We have done and will do nothing to make peace with God. God making peace with us is a completely one sided process. It's God who does it all. He takes the initiatives. Rome, the initiative. Romans 5.8 says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 2 Corinthians 5, the beginning of verse 17 and then 18 says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. And all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. When you were at your worst, when you did that thing, when you thought that thing that you don't ever tell anybody about, when you were at your worst, wicked, depraved, evil, or better yet, if you allowed yourself to give in to the darkness and depravity that lurks in the corners of your heart, and you gave yourself over to that completely. And you weren't looking for a savior because you loved the darkness. That's when Christ, who is the fullness of God, looked at you and said, I'll die for her. I'll die for him. It had nothing to do with you reaching out. God does it all. It's a completely one-sided process. He makes peace with you while you're cursing him, throwing rocks, trying to overthrow his reign and rule, questioning everything he does, refusing his love, storming the castle with murder in your eyes. Isn't his grace amazing? I mean, isn't his love just mind-blowing in light of what we're talking about from Colossians chapter 1 and Romans chapter 1? I mean, isn't it just amazing? It is. But listen, here's where it gets even crazier. Here's where the character of God in Christ just blows my mind. Because Colossians didn't just say that he does this thing. Colossians didn't just say that he offers us peace, that he makes peace, and he initiates the process of reconciliation, even though we don't, we don't deserve it, we can't earn it, and we don't even want it. 
It didn't just say that. It said that it's his pleasure to do so. Think about that. It's not obligation. It's not out of some sense of duty that drives him. He's not reluctant in this. He's not in heaven going, I knew I shouldn't have created these fools. Man, they mess everything up. I knew I shouldn't have done it. I knew they weren't going to reach out to me for peace, even though I'm the only one that has peace. I knew they wouldn't do it. I guess now I've got to save them. I guess now I've got to go initiate this whole process and save these fools. Nah. He's pleased to do it. Giving everything to make peace with you is God's pleasure. He loves it. He looked forward to it. He was excited to come to earth and give himself for you and for me. It brings him joy like a kid wanting to open presents on Christmas morning. So was God giddy to give that first present on the first Christmas morning himself. I mean, he's not reluctant in this. He's not begrudging. He's not ambivalent. He's pleased. Isn't that just mind-blowing? Let's pick our story back up. There once was a great and generous king who ruled an evil and ungrateful people. No matter what he did, no matter what he said, the people would not accept his offers of peace. They kept rebelling, kept storming the castle, kept killing the king's representatives who carried his banner of peace. Until finally, against all counsel, the king went to the people himself. And he lived out his goodness in front of them. He was kind, just, generous, gracious. And they killed him for it. They tortured him and they murdered him. The counselors of the king had been right, and they were broken. They didn't know what to do. They laid the king's body in the royal tomb, and they went back up to the castle, prepared for one last rebellion, one last storming of the castle, knowing that without the king's leadership, they would lose, and they too would die. And just when they were sure that all was lost and darkness would win. People started showing up at the edge of the courtyard to the castle. And the, the followers of the king readied for battle and readied to defend the king's home, but the people, they, they didn't have weapons. And they weren't storming the castle, they were just weeping. The very people who had killed the king were weeping over what they had done, weeping over their rebellion, weeping over their evil. And as they wept, they walked towards the castle. And when they got to the castle, each of the people turned around their back to the castle and stood strong as if to defend the king's home. And in that moment, the counselors watched as the darkness around each person who turned to defend the king's home was replaced by light. 
a tendril of light would enter their immediate vicinity and dispel all of the darkness. Thousands came like this, one by one, weeping, walking to the castle, turning, standing strong to defend the king's home, and being changed from darkness to light. And the king's counselors stood at the top of the wall, and and they noticed that the tendrils of light that were dispelling the darkness, they were all coming from the same place, from the royal tombs. It was the king's sacrifice, the king's blood that was making this happen. They couldn't believe it. They didn't understand it. Some of them really struggled to accept it, but they welcomed it. It was as if these people were being transformed, these evil, ungrateful, ambivalent murderers of this great and generous king were being transformed into totally different people. I don't have time to tell you all of the rest of the story, but suffice it to say that the rebellion came anyways. The storming of the castle still happened. There were still people who chose darkness and war over light and peace. But more people chose to make peace with the king than those who didn't. Weeping, turning to defend the king's home, and being transformed by the light. Look at Colossians 1, verse 22. All of this, all of this reconciling, all of that God is doing to make peace with you, this one-sided process that you and I don't deserve it says he's now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order, verse 22, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. This is why he's doing it, to, to present you holy and blameless and above reproach. The, the scriptures paint this, this dark picture of you and me, of our default position, of our natural condition And what we deserve apart from Christ. We're evil, hateful, hostile, selfish, and sinful. It's dark. And it's not all that encouraging. And that's why many of you, you just reject it. Because it's too difficult to deal with. You'd much rather continue thinking that you're a good enough person. You'd much rather continue comparing yourself to your neighbor and going, I'm better than he is. It's much more difficult to realize that you are not good, that you are not innocent, that you are in fact depraved, bad, evil, and very, very guilty. You'd rather play the comparison game than accept this. It's the truth, and and the scriptures paint this horrifying and graphic picture of this truth, but... There is a turn. There is a turn in the scriptures. There's this contrast between what it looks like to be apart from Christ and what we are transformed into with Christ. Mourning to dancing, sorrow to gladness, darkness to light, guilt to innocence, sinful 
to holy. When we are reconciled to God in Christ, everything is transformed. Our condition, our mind, our desires, our destiny, and more. What I'm saying is that when we accept God's peace in Christ, our story of despair is completely transformed to a story of hope. We're rescued. Hate becomes love. Sadness becomes joy. Selfishness is transformed into compassion. Rebellion and distrust is is transformed into unity and faith. From sinful and guilty to holy, blameless, and above reproach. So Colossians says. So it's not all bad news. But listen, beloved, you... You have to understand the bad news to accept the good news. Hear me out. If you think you're good to go as is, you'll never accept God's gift to you in Christ because you won't think you need it. If you don't know you're sick, you won't take the medicine. If you don't think you're dying, you won't call 911. If you don't understand the bad news, that At your core, you are not good, that there is no best version of yourself, that there is no goodness in yourself to tap into, that there is no find what you need inside of yourself, that apart from Christ, you are completely and totally lost in darkness, depraved, evil, and loving it. If you can't accept that, if you don't internalize that, weep over that, then you'll never be able to accept his offer of peace because you don't think you need it. You'll never be able to accept his offer of peace because you don't think you're causing war. You'll never be able to be rescued because you don't think you're in danger. The bad news is so important to understand so that we can accept the good news in Christ. You being transformed by a God who loves you starts with your need to be transformed by a God who loves you. And that's what makes the good news so good, isn't it? I mean, isn't that what makes the good news so awesome? His grace, so amazing. His love, so attractive that the bad news is so bad, but Jesus, right? But Jesus showed up and transformed us. But there there is a condition here in the text and a caveat. And, you know, you might not love it, but I didn't write it. So you can be mad at the Holy Spirit who inspired the Apostle Paul to write it. But there is a condition here. He says all of this in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him if. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. The Apostle Paul, 
He's writing to this young church where there's this confusion that has seeped into the hearts of many. And it's this false teaching that's coming in from this group called the Gnostics. And this young church is told that Jesus isn't enough, that he's just the first rung on the ladder, that you need Jesus plus this understanding and this enlightenment and this truth. That they don't have the full experience yet. That's why the theme of Colossians is the supremacy of Christ, Jesus plus nothing. But the Apostle Paul is writing and he says that the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Christ. And that through Christ, God was pleased to reconcile sinners, depraved, evil people who knew no need for a Savior back to himself. Even though they had no hope, no desire. He still shed his blood. He died so that you would be transformed. The Apostle Paul is writing, if. If you continue in the faith, steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. If you stay strong in the face of adversity. If you stay strong in the face of tragedy. If you stay strong in the face of false teachers, whether they be Gnostics or whether they be another group. False teachers that, they, that say they have some knowledge, something you don't know that usurps and makes itself supreme over Christ and his word. If you stay, stay strong. I think what the Apostle Paul is saying here is that there's still road to walk, Right? Like still some journey ahead. He's saying that the gospel, it doesn't work like magic. It's not like you walk an aisle, you do something, and boom, you're, you're good to go. Nothing else happens from that day forward. You're not zapped and made perfect when you lay down the weapons you were using to storm the castle. That's just the beginning. I think he's saying that there's still some turning that needs to happen, Right? Turning away from sin and self and rebellion and evil and false gods and turning towards God, towards Christ. You have to stand firm, he's saying. The Bible over and over and over tells us, stand firm, hold fast, keep the faith, right? Stand strong over and over and over, but, but not through our power, not through our own ability. No, we stand firm through the power of the Holy Spirit, through what the Bible calls the resurrection power of Christ. The, the same power, the same power that rose Christ from the dead is, is at work, not in everybody, but the Bible says in all who believe. That the same power who resurrected the dead body of Jesus Christ, the same power that put ligaments back together and bones back together, the same power that, that defeated death in the grave is now at work in you and me. That's the power, that's the power that we lean into to walk this out, to walk this journey out that we're talking about, to stand firm as the Bible says. So, we lean in and we depend on Jesus more and more. That's, that's what we do. Our work is not done when we walk an aisle, when we say a prayer, when we get baptized. That's not the end of this thing. That's just the beginning because we surrender our lives over to God more and more each day. That's the way it's supposed to work. 
We're conformed into the image of Christ, the Bible says. It's called sanctification. And it's not about gaining more power, but about relinquishing power to Jesus. It's not about becoming stronger, but about Jesus becoming stronger in us. It's not like we level, right, level up in Jesus, like all of a sudden I can handle more. No, it's just that we, we lean into him more. There's still a road to walk, a journey, a process, a step to take right now, today. Us making peace with God is not a one-time thing. It's, it's an ongoing thing. I'm not saying that you get saved every week you come to church or that you get baptized over and over. I, I'm just saying that there's this process of sanctification when, where you're daily being made more like Jesus and giving him more of yourself, laying down the weapons of rebellion and taking up his banner of peace, opening pockets of darkness in your life so that his light can transform it. And when you do that, you're inviting more and more of God's peace into your life, his restorative peace into your life. And it's all a part of reconciliation. So when was the last time you did that? When, when was the last time you confessed and you wept over your sin and rebellion and you opened a new part of you to Jesus? When was the last time you admitted the darkness in your heart, laid down your weapons of rebellion, and changed? Really changed what you were doing, what you were thinking, how you were living? If you can't think of the last time, or it's been a long time, I'd be concerned. Because it either means that you've arrived, that you're just like Jesus, Conformed into the image of Jesus, done, arrived. It either means that or that this process of sanctification, of you becoming more like Jesus, this idea that you're relinquishing more of your life to him for the whole, for the entirety of your life, this process, it means that it's stalled in you. If you haven't done this in a while, if you, if you can't think of the last time you you had this kind of a situation, it means that it's, maybe it's stalled. And that should put some godly fear in you this morning. Because as I read the scriptures, I'm not really sure that's possible for a Christ follower. I'm not really sure it's possible. There is a God in heaven, this great and generous king, With pleasure, he has done all of the work. Despite our hatred of him, our rebellion towards him, he has done it all to make peace with those who have declared themselves his enemies in every way possible, with, with you and with me. He's come to us, entered our territory, entered enemy territory, and given his life for us. He's offered us his peace. Now it's up to us to respond. It's for everybody. So how will you respond? 
Will you remain in darkness? In, in futile, senseless rebellion against this great and generous king? Or will you instead be transformed by him? Mourning to dancing. Sorrow to gladness. Darkness to light. Guilt to innocence. Sinful to holy. How will you respond? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word that is sharper than any double-edged sword. Um, I thank you for your truth that reigns supreme above what the world would call truth or what an individual would say is their truth. I thank you that you are the source of truth, even difficult truth. I pray, God, that we wouldn't shy away from difficult truth, but would rather embrace it, be changed by it, accept it, and base our lives on it. I pray today that many in this room would make peace with you. God would, would accept your offer of peace. As we continue in an attitude of prayer with our eyes closed and our heads bowed, maybe you're in here and you, you just came because somebody was getting baptized, church really isn't your thing. Maybe you came because it's Father's Day or whatever, but or maybe you're here every week, but you're, you're realizing that you have yet to, to make peace with God. You have yet to accept his offer of peace, that you are still in your heart storming the castle with murder in your eyes day after day after day. You've yet to be transformed by him. Maybe you're in here and you're going, man, you're talking about this process, right? This process of sanctification. and It has stalled in my life. I, I don't see it. I can't think of the last time I confessed, the last time I wept over my sin, the last time I asked for forgiveness, the last time I changed. I can't remember that. If that's you, I, I just want to give you a moment here to make peace with God, to accept his offer of peace to you. It's for everybody. It's for everybody. It doesn't matter what you've done. doesn't matter how far you've wandered. This offer of peace goes everywhere and to everyone. So if that's you today, just, just pray. Just pray in, in your mind, in your heart, or maybe even out loud. Just begin to say, God, I need, I need your peace. I, I accept your peace. I confess. Let, let the idea of, of your sin, the depravity that you and I were born into, the evil that we love, the idea that we don't even look for a savior outside of the Holy Spirit prompting us to do it like a, on a day like today. Let that kind of stuff sink into your heart. Dwell on it just for a moment. Feel that godly sorrow. And just tell him, Lord, I, I want to make peace with you. I want to accept your peace. I need your help. I need you to be, I need you to transform me into a new person. Prayer workers on the side, if you just raise your hand and you're saying, I want to make peace with God, make sure you go talk to a prayer worker. They just want to say a quick prayer with you. 
Uh, and then get baptized as soon as you can. You can stop at Connection Central. They'll give you a little packet that talks about baptism. And just like always, make sure you talk this over with your life group this week. Get plugged into one if you're not. And don't let this stop with you. Just like you've been helped to take your next step towards God. Go out this week and help others to do the same. Open up the scriptures to Colossians 1 and talk to them about reconciliation. Be a Christ follower who makes a disciples of the Christ followers.